It's happening, readers. We have heard that you want paperbacks from our tailored book recommendation service called TBR. And I'm delighted to let you know that we're going to be in sync with your request. That's right. We're bringing paperbacks. Whether you hate carrying around bulky hardcovers, you're on a budget, you want a wider range of recommendations, or all of the above, now you can get a paperback subscription from TBR curated just for you by one of our bibliologists. Get all the details at mytbr.co. That's mytbr.co. We're bringing paperbacks. <laughs> Welcome to the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and we're talking about the world of books and reading. And I am excited. That came in hotter than I usually do. <laughs> yeah, you did come Ooh, in hot. It's Thursday, October 28th, 2021. I'm Jeff O'Neill. She's Rebecca Shinsky. Coming to you from bookriot.com. Um, we're now in the heat of the best books of the year conversation. We're going to talk about PW's list. You didn't put it on here because I think it just came out this morning. Um, Barnes and Noble's lists of the mm. can their finalists for books of the year, crying in H Mart, notably among the ones we yes. talked about there. Um, it's that time of year, and we're going to talk about some of our recent reading. We're going to talk about Matrix by Lauren Groff for a few minutes, and then talk about Crossroads by Jonathan Franzen for a few minutes. I almost said Jonathan Groff, which is an interesting portmanteau. <laughs> it's a different character, different p- person That's an altogether. interesting kind of novel to imagine. Yeah, I would read Jonathan Groff's novel, I think, I actually. His memoir, for sure. Especially <laughs> doing an audiobook narration. So a little news, little reading wrap-up. But uh, before we do that, we've got a new podcast we want to talk about. But let's do that after the break. That's what we call a teaser, folks. <laughs> It's happening, readers. We have heard that you want paperbacks from our tailored book recommendation service called TBR. And I am delighted to let you know that we're going to be in sync with your request. That's right. We're bringing paperbacks. Whether you hate carrying around bulky hardcovers, you're on a budget, you want a wider range of recommendations, or all of the above, now you can get a paperback subscription from TBR curated just for you by one of our bibliologists. Get all the details at mytbr.co. That's mytbr.co. We're bringing paperbacks. So we're experimenting with a new podcast feed that that's grown out of a i think it's something more than a bit that we do on our book yeah, nerd movie club it's a it's feature a it's a thing. form it's, it's a, a thing feature. um called adaptation nation which if you've been familiar with our book nerd movie club episodes you'll know what we're talking about we read the thing we watch the thing we talk about the thing is the pithy three-liner i came up with to, to put on some of the branding we're going to do for it and it's going to not just be re- Rebecca and I, it's going to be a rotating cast of book riot editors based on, you know, their affinity or interest in talking about the book and or movie. And our first one is coming out next week, and it's going to be Dune! (laughs) That is an appropriate amount of yelling for what I picked up while Dune was being watched in another room of my house. That's right. So it's that episode is going to be Jen Northington, Amanda, and I um, talking about the book Dune and talking about the movie Dune. And then I don't think I'm going to say we, we're still figuring out what some of the rest ones are. I know what the next one is going to be. Vanessa and Diaz are, and I are going to be the second mm. one. You and I will, and will be on some in the future. We're going to we're going to do the thing. So it's going to be a mix of new releases and old favorites and interesting messes, um, stuff that's fun that we want to read and talk about. Do a little bit of like trying to catch zeitgeisty things. Dune is zeitgeisty. Uh, let's start there maybe for just a second. Dune made it into the zeitgeist. Do, do, do yeah. would you agree with me on this? 
I would agree. There are yes. Dune memes in my Instagram. It's extremely memeable. Can you it tell is. me what are you seeing any recurrence oh. of memes? Is there a um, meme is the mind killer? Which which one is that? Was the biggest one so far? I've seen. I mean, th- these are like extremely my wheelhouse. But yes. one was a Joey Tribbiani "How You Dune" meme. <laughs> okay, I like that. <laughs> and the other was a couple screenshots from The Sopranos, where I think it was Polly is basically telling a your mom joke that comes down to like Dune your mom which i now So these have are more puns than than Dune these are these are not <laughs> images of like uh Duncan Idaho flexing with a weird caption okay I No see but can doing. i tell you just like yesterday morning bob informed me that there is a character in Dune named Duncan Idaho Look and... i don't want to step on one of my bits but let me just say, I'm going to have fun with the name Duncan Idaho when the time comes. Oh my gosh. I, you know, I think I mentioned on the last episode that Amanda and Bob were going to watch it together. I was going to watch it with them. I ended up like, I had a thing that I had forgotten I committed to go do. So I came home from my yoga thing and Amanda and Bob were like halfway through Dune and it was loud and it sounded Dooney. And all I could hear was Amanda going, why are there so many bagpipes? <laughs> Anyone like, that had the, the over under of number of bad pipes in Dune is one. All the over is one. They all one. Like, I would have taken the under. Is right? Is that supposed to be happening? I was like, you know what? I'm gonna just go in the other room and read my Jonathan Franzen and let this thing that's unfolding unfold. Um, but D- D- Dune is a zeitgeist. Dune, Dune is were... in the zeitgeist. Yeah, I have not seen any Duncan Idaho memes, but maybe I'm just not following the right nerds. <laughs> Duncan Idaho. It's an I cannot get over idea. it. Amazing idea. Anyway, so I'm going to put a link in the show notes where you can subscribe. It, you can also subscribe to any of the podcasts. It's available now. It's not Dune episode. It's not the Dune episode, but it's like the little teaser. You can just get it set up. So when it drops, you'll hear me talk for a minute with some music that I, I have to admit, I spent it's much good. longer trying to pick the music than I really should have. It, it was really, I really got fussy, but I wanted something generically fanfare show title um, that sounds like the overture to a big budget uh adaptation so you know i don't we haven't really talked about this but we might go and redo some of our earlier effort we might go back and yeah. revisit some stuff because we're gonna have, it's gonna have a little more of a structure um with some ongoing things and a little you know have some different people but i could talk about jurassic park forever so we might have to do a <laughs> jurassic if park we, uh re- redux if we redo the new romeo and juliet the new romeo and juliet the Baz Luhrmann one like every year or two i'll be completely fine with that i think that was the one that was my my favorite that we've done well let me let me put it this way i had more fun than i expected doing that yes right Uh it was our shared affinity for it and it was very specific a moment in time and we both really like it and it was it was worth talking about we're going to get to specific moments in time when we get to the franzen because we have (laughs) it's not even the wheelhouse it's like is there a chair in the wheelhouse (laughs) that we all will sit in when it comes to being part of protestant youth groups (laughs) the root of the root the The butt of the the bud yes yes the root of (laughs) flesh of my flesh it all comes back to sitting down on um shabbily furnished attic spaces in churches when you're a teenager (laughs) oh yeah including couches that are the springs are so bad that your knees come up higher than your head like i've been there somehow worse than college apartment furniture like we need a a a hierarchy of usable (laughs) furniture and i think the youth group couch couch is like the last rung you hit before you get shot into the sun or you know like moldering on the street somewhere by the time it's done in the youth group room you can't donate it to anybody else and trust me you don't want it after it's been up there with 14 year olds you do not want that couch 
Anyway, subscribe to Adaptation Nation. <laughs> yeah. And so we're doing Dune. Uh, let's see. You know, I don't know that we're going to do this one because it's in, in the fall. Have you seen the trailer for The Tender Bar? No. It's George Clooney is directing it and it's starring Ben Affleck. And it's based on a really great memoir um, that came out a while ago. Basically, a guy, it's, a, it's a young, it's a boy that's raised by his uncle who works in a bar and the and the kid spends too much time hanging around the bar but he gets to know the oh. whole group there go find the trailer this sounds very appealing it's very sweet and you know there's there's the there are many face the many faces of Ben Affleck are hard to 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 wrap your mind around but i think my favorite one is the kind of down on his luck kind of understands he didn't play his cards right version of mm-hmm. Ben Affleck both in personal mm-hmm. both both in public and in on the screen like his his Matt, his goodwill hunting character he knows yeah. what's there but he's also humble but he also is a bit of a dick but he's not he's not the Ben Affleck that's like you know hanging out at casinos all night i don't want that but like the little more reticent one i really like and then just it's it has a really great vibe i, I go recommend at least watching the trailer Clooney's director, uh, Clooney's record as a director is spotty, um, but this is small. It leans on really good source material, and I think it's cast well, and the vibe is cool. I'm really looking forward to it. So yeah, I don't know if that's think... the kind of thing we're going to do eventually, but we might. So let us know. Podcast at bookwrite.com if there's things coming out. Um, but Rebecca, yes. I do recommend at least you watching the trailer to The Tender Bar. I'm gonna. And I was just thinking, you know, Clooney, you're right that his record as a director is spotty, but in a way that is like interesting, messy most of the yes. time. So I'm in. Did he direct also, The I Descendants like... in addition to starring in it? Do you know? Oh, you know what? I don't think he did, okay. but I might be thinking about the fact that that's adapted from someone else's book yeah. rather than that it was direct. I'm not positive. I'm, I don't think he did. When you go um, do your like favorite 10 Clooney roles, I think Descendants is up there. I really like that movie, by the way. Yeah, I like his vibe neither in that. I mean, nor there. nothing's ever touching Ocean's Eleven well, in my, I mean, in my come heart. On. Let's, let's, let's be reasonable here um, as these things go. Okay, let's get on to news of the week where do you want let's do best books of 2020 with publishers weekly and i think that can maybe carry us into a what are the best books of the year like is there any sort of um acclamation running around because your boy is here again mm-hmm. little devil in america i think yes. is becoming a candidate for non-fiction non-fiction book of the year and when i mean book of the year i don't necessarily mean best book i don't even necessarily mean bestseller but like whatever we mean by zeitgeistiest um, and not just in terms of bestselling, because that's not it. But like, there's something here, and it really seemed like Hanif Dur- um, Adurakib. Is that right? Am I, yes, did I get that Abdurakib. close? A little, mm-hmm. a little devil in America, which I still haven't read. I have it on audio. Um, I'm Ooh, really looking forward experience. to this. But that's really good. Also, um, be our favorite. Somebody's daughter by Ashley Ford is on Publishers Weekly list. And a couple things I've seen crop up, and a couple things that are new. I thought there was too many. Um, female spies, resistance fighters in World War II books, but one is broken mm-hmm. through, and I've seen on a couple of these lists, All the Frequent Troubles of Our Days by Rebecca Donner is on this list, um, which it must be very good because there's a lot of these. Is that Do you, do you, think, do you think you would yeah. be interested in this, or is it there are too many? I think it's, I'm saturated, market saturated so on this. Also, that's such a wordy title that I was just imagining people walking into bookstores being like, it's something about the Donner Party and Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a Not Dave a- Eggers title. 
Um, yeah, it's not a pithy. It's not a pithy title, but like nonfiction often is not as pithy in titling as it should be. Yeah. Um, Dirty work, essential jobs, and the hidden toll of inequality in America. The like the range in their top ten, especially just the top ten of the year for mm-hmm. Publishers Weekly, is interesting, and it is less shiny than I expected. Hipstery, it to be. baby. Isn't it? Yeah, Rachel it's Cusk. A little, it's it's Atticus Lish. I mean, uh, Dana yeah, Spadia. It's a little hipstery. It's a little hipstery. Because even and, Little Devil America, that's a hipster pick, right? Right. Mel, Mel. Well, listen to this. The only the biggest commercial book is somebody's daughter, in terms of like true. being on Instagram and stuff. Like, I don't know. I'd be curious to see with sales. Um, have you ever read an Atticus Lish book? This is one of my contemporary. I don't. I couldn't tell you. I have a not. single word about Atticus the Atticus, nope. Atticus Lish experience. I read Dana Spadia before. I don't know Keith Ridgeway. Um, I, I got to tell you, I like Joyce and I like Ulysses, but takes on a Joycean recursive structure. Yeah. No, <sighs> I'm not sure. I'm in. It's I'm tough out. For me. I'm out. That's yeah. a lot of work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm I'm out there. Rachel Cusk is on my list of authors that I like am someday going to get to that have been recommended to me. Uh, I, I totally I agree with you on that one too. Have not made it there. Um and then Assembly by Natasha Brown is one that it's the very first one on the list and that is one that I had not heard of until this list, but it makes references to Bell Hooks and Claudia Rankine, amongst other things, looking at an incisive and unforgettable mixed genre critique of race, class, and gender relations. So that sounds like something I'm definitely interested in. Plus, the line, this accomplishes in 90, 96 pages what other books do in 300. So I had please. to go double check that. 96 pages. Yeah, impressive. Unbelievable. So- that's uh, probably the first one of these top 10 that I'm going to go. Do it this afternoon. Um, also, out. I just right. looking at it. It was on, um, let's see, must read, must read. You know, like it was, there was a lot of hype for this book too. So that one, mm. I think I'm definitely going to pick up. Um, 96, you know, 96 pages. It says 112 prints. So that includes front and back okay. matter. That's yeah. a, that's an hour and a half. You can get through Yeah. That. That one just, I think, missed my radar somehow, and I don't know how, because it sounds like something I'm very interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. All That She Carried. I've seen this crop up. Um, MacArthur Fellow Miles blends meticulous scholarly research with novelistic mm-hmm. imagination to explore how material objects, in this case a cloth sack, can illuminate the hidden corners of the, corners of the American past. I think I will do this on audio, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. Um, that sounds it's good. Like a, it's, more, it's less than a microhistory, right? It's not just salt. It's a particular bag. It's like um, Annie mm-hmm. Prue's accordion crimes, following a particular accordion through time. Dirty work, uh, essential jobs in the hidden toll of inequality in America. This sounds like an important book. Um, I've seen it on a couple of lists. I don't know what to tell you. I'm not going to read that. I'm not do it. <laughs> I don't know. Not my jam. You know what is my jam? Yeah. Speaking of, mm-hmm. I've got a I've got a question for you. I've got a fork in my reading road. I need you to help Ooh. me navigate. Okay, I may ready. get to both of these eventually. I asked Michelle this question earlier today, and the response I got there was, let's say, hostile to the whole the whole <laughs> endeavor. <laughs> Hi, Michelle. Yeah, here are the two books I'm considering. I can't remember the names of them. It doesn't matter. One <laughs> is a history of index funds. Oh, Jeff. <laughs> is that worse than a history of Trader Joe's? Yes, that's worse. It's worse than an index. Okay. Yes. Right. Gee, I don't have any sense of this. <laughs> Trader Joe's is at least like first of all an enjoyable experience that is a fixture in the pop culture and there's an interesting story 
there. And Trader Joe's does a really good job selling itself. Like yeah. I've seen this history of Trader Joe's floating around and I'm also considering mm. it. I live with a person who like touches index funds on a daily basis who could not be paid money to read a history of index funds. That so. just sounds like a challenge to me. I think it could be <laughs> fascinating. John Bogle, shouts to the Bogleheads out there. I mean, it is a wonderful feature of Jeff O'Neill that you can find almost anything to be interesting in the right framework. But I just, I, a history of index funds might be a bridge too far. So, so you're not into a eight part read along of trillions, <laughs> the history of Abs- index funds? I am absolutely not. But thanks for considering me. <laughs> How about this book? Um, how about this book pitch that I just wrote on a piece of paper while I was talking? <laughs> I want to call it um, bore, uh, the, the Virtues of Boring. How about that? Where each chapter yeah, is about that. a really boring thing. Would you read a chapter yes. in a book about the virtues of boring that was about index funds? Would you go that far? A, his- a history of boredom in the 10 most boring books? Yeah, no, the virtues of boring mm-hmm. in, in 10 boring objects or things. I, I, what did yeah. I put in there? I put in um, plumbing. I put plumbing. There's a chapter on plumbing sure. for sure. I'm doing a chapter on index funds. I think I'm doing a chapter on walking. Yes. I'm in you have I'm sold for your chapter on walking alone. Yeah. And uh, I have to think of some other. What are my next seven objects that that explore the virtues of boring? Oh, it's, I think something around like a uh, highway design or interstate mm. planning. Yeah, I I like that. Air the stapler. Control. The stapler. <laughs> something um, like that. Yeah, okay. Yeah, a history of the fork. Fork. I've read that of uten- history of utensils. I've read a book about that. <laughs> <laughs> what else? <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. I have so much affection for this. I like cannot help it. <laughs> yeah, but I think uh, anyway. So the the long story short there was the micro history of a particular object as a lens to see a whole phenomenon is really cool. So this is, I'm not yes. saying this is boring, but I like this very specific building out, right? Build the right. universe out of the atom of a particular object and see how it yeah. goes. Yeah, all that she carried sounds like it's the opposite of boring. Mm-hmm. And then we said Little Devil America and Somebody's Daughter. At this point, there's no books that I'm like, I can't believe you didn't put this on the list. Are we to that yeah, point? Are there any are there any books that came out this year like, you know, we thought it might be Harlem Shuffle. We've seen it got left off a couple of things and we've read it and it's really good, but I don't think there's any and again, I haven't read enough yeah, of these, but I feel yeah, no like know, it has to be on a list. There hasn't been a big novel of 2021, no. like the novel of mm-hmm. 2021 yet. Um and I think that if we were going to see it. We probably would have seen it by now just because we're hitting the place where most of the big books have come out. I read Lincoln the, Highway, which I really liked. Um, the sentence is on Barnes & Noble's finalist list for the four books of the year. I wonder yeah, if that might have the book nerd thing because I've seen The Door, The Cloud Cuckoo Land. It has a book thing. That's around. It's 700 pages, yeah, though. And I, I don't know. I think the sentence is on the Publishers Weekly Best Fiction list. Right. Um yeah, I'm there's nothing that I'm like personally offended that didn't make the PW mm-hmm. top 10. I'm a little bit surprised that like for my money the best novel of the year is The Ishiguru and I am surprised to not see Clara and the Sun. I wonder if it came out too early in the year to be remembered for things like this. Um That's, that's a, great a point. book it's a book that really feels of 
this like moment in time and mm. technology and society but i haven't read the other fiction on this list and i try not to do the thing of like yes. how dare you not put this other book because i'm sure that all 10 of these deserve to be recognized as well and it's not like oh you should swap out rachel cusk for ishiguru or anything like that but yeah. I'm, I'm surprised not to see that it's a i mean it's such a quiet book I, but it's like it's still so far the best books that i've read this year mm-hmm. two of them are from when when we talked about our best books of the year so far in the summer, and it's the Ishiguru and Hanif Abdurraqib, mm-hmm. and those were reading experiences that were pretty singular and memorable and are hard to top. You know that that word singular is interesting because we're t- we're going to talk about Franz and, and Graf mm-hmm. here in a moment, but also this like idea of best, and it's always tricky. I was thinking for myself about a sort of a different rubric for evaluating books, um, and I want to th- run it by you here in just a minute. But let's sure. take another sponsor break uh, real quick. I was thinking about this because between Claire and the Sun, Harlem Shuffle, Matrix, and Crossroads, these are all four of these books are books I like. And I'll throw in, let's throw in Crying in H Mart and Somebody's Daughter. So the books we've talked about Mm -hmm. at all, I would say we haven't talked about, well, we have. I think we'd say we like all of those books. Do you like Crossroads? Is it, but that's the only thing I'm not 100% sure about. So we like all Mm -hmm. these books. But they're not all the same, and they're not all the same level of good or best. So I'm going to propose sort of a three three gateways, right? One, the first gateway is, did you like the book? That's the simplest one. It's pretty much a yes or no question. People most can, did you like the book? Sometimes you have to be, yeah, but there might be caveats, but generally you know if you like the book or not. The second one was, did you get into it? Do you know what I'm? Do you hear what I'm saying mm-hmm, here? Mm-hmm. So, like, were you into it? So, during the reading of it, were you doing the things like making extra time, looking forward to it, reading a little bit longer? Because I like books that I don't get into, but I don't get into books that I don't like. Does that make sense? Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Are you with me so far? I'm with you. And then the last here is: is the book special? Hmm. Is it unlike other things meaningfully enough that it's hard that it brings something new to a table? So that's to me the last. That's really the last rung I'm comfortable evaluating because then after that, is it an all timer? Is kind of the next one. That's the only yeah. thing after that. So like, is it special? And I think that helps me distinguish between the books, all these books we've talked about and we'll talk about. I like them all, but then some of them start to fall away when I apply those second layer uh, heuristics to them. So what do you think about my tripartite evaluation? I like that tripartite and I would add, I don't know if it's a fourth gateway Mm. or like a piece of nuance on the third gateway of is it special is like, did you derive, like, did you derive some kind of value or edification Mm. from it? Like, I, I think it's completely fine to read for reasons that aren't edification and certainly some of my reading and a whole lot of my consumption of other media Mm -hmm. (laughs) is about, is about entertainment. But I think my in my personal evaluation, the most meaningful in a lasting way reading experiences like give me a new lens on something about life or the world yeah. that that I didn't have before and that no other piece of writing has given me before mm-hmm. and that probably, you know, nothing else will unlock in the same way in the future. There will be other things to unlock, but like that is part of the I think that's part of my definition of is it special yeah is did it did it unlock something for me or make me understand or look at things in a different way did it challenge me in some capacity yeah I think that's so let's take um one great case for something that's special but may not be important I think I think the Martian is a special book just I'll just put that out there like it's a special reading experience 
it's not important, right? right? So does it does it exist on the same level? No, maybe that's what separates it from being a candidate for an Alzheimer, right? Maybe if you special mm-hmm. plus important equals longevity, that's fine. But you know, something that's that's important may not be special necessarily either. I think is also a very possible, right? Like you can read a really important book that's a history. And mm-hmm. it might teach you something or a self-help manual or investing manual or something else that like really gets you. But is it a special reading experience? I guess is what I'm coming from here. Because I think that's a little easier to, to forecast for other people than will they find it important. I guess it's my other right. vector yeah, that I'm thinking I think, about here. And I guess to illustrate it, like with the Abdurraqib and my experience of it, that book is special because like he's not talking about a subject that no one's ever talked about right, before. He's right. talking about art and specifically about black art and black the performance of blackness and black performance. And those are important distinctions and things that are all related to each other also. He's not the first person to do this, but he's the first person to do it in his voice and his perspective as a poet and as a person who's like really thinking about and interrogating his own existence and performance in the world as a black person and as Mm -hmm. a black artist. And all those things come together in the right way because of how he's able to look at them and articulate them that made like... I learned some new things in his book, but I also read, you know, there's like a chapter about Michael Jackson and there's some stuff about Prince. Like there are pieces of culture there that I was plenty familiar with, but I thought about them differently because he talked about them in a way that was singular. For me, I think Mm -hmm. that singularness is really important too. Is this a best? Like has nobody done a thing that's quite like this before? Yeah. And that's, I think that maybe is the thing I'm trying to capture with this idea of special. Now, if the I think the Martian is made slightly less special by Project Hail Mary or vice versa, yeah. right? If yes. you had never read mm-hmm. the Martian, you read Project Hail Mary, you're like, oh my God. But this is what happens when someone beats the same drum. I think The Firm is a lot more special if Grisham writes completely different novels after the fact. Same with, I don't know, I was just thinking of somebody else. Um, oh, I, I mean, think I think James it. Salter is a good example. Yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Each it, of those novels is special in its own, and certainly they're all... It's a very special body of right. work, but they're very similar to each other. Right. John Irving. And it's another way of too. coming back to one of our, our great, uh, maybe the greatest vector of admiring Whitehead is each one is special, mm-hmm. right? It, or, or could be special. It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't rely upon the same vibe because Paradise is less special because Beloved exists. It's just true. I don't right. know how else to say right. it. Um, if, it. If Beloved didn't exist, it would be even, uh, it would be special in its own way. Now, that's different than, the, than Morrison being special, but on book-by-book basis. So I thought that we'd talk about, so the ones that make it to special for me, I think Claire and the Sun is special. Mm-hmm. I think Matrix is special. Yep. I think that's it for the the ones we're talking about together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of the ones we've talked about together, I think so. Somebody's think, daughter is borderline. Yeah, I think somebody's daughter is special in this moment, and in like when we look back on it, will have been a special book in the moment of mm. writing and culture that it unlocked. Um, but Ashley Ford's not doing. She's not doing something wholly new, and no, that's fine. That's Most fine. memoirists aren't. No, the high bar. <laughs> you know? I'm saying special a, is a freaking the highest bar I have for it's you. It's a really high bar. Yeah. Um, Harlem Shuffle yeah, is good. I like it. I don't think it's special. Not, yeah, I think when we were we were sort of talking around yeah. it last week of 
I'm not I'm not sure that I put Harlem Shuffle on the list of best mm-hmm. books of the year. It's a it's a good book and I enjoyed reading it and I love Colson Whitehead. Um Crying in H Mart, good. I'm into it. Good. Yeah, I good think into I can, it. I'm not ready to call it special. Yeah. I so agree. anyway, those are those are my those are my there. Now Crossroads. I liked it. And I got into it for a while is where mm-hmm. I would stop that. So it's kind of a one and a half hurdles, <laughs> I guess. This is kind of how I'm coming <laughs> at that too. So if you if you like this rubric, we did this before with historical fiction. We can get into whether or not Crossroads is historical <laughs> fiction or not in a minute. Give me some wrinkles out there to this idea of like into special being the um, ascending orders, the, the bronze, silver, and gold for personal experiences and uh, – um, uh, evaluations of a reading experience yeah. podcast at bookriot.com. I think that this helps me articulate something that I wish all of these best books of the year lists came with. Here's how we defined best. Yeah. Like here's, here's what we sat down to do. Cause I know you and Michelle like to distinguish between the best and your favorites Absolutely. in different categories. Those are not always the same thing. I think that's a really helpful distinction, but it, I would love to know like what was the task for the PW editors in best books of the year mm-hmm. and how did they, how did that task and the specific conversations, if they had one lead to that list of top 10 of the year? What right. are, what are their gateways would be? It would be so interesting to know, like transparency of your gateways would be fascinating. <laughs> Show title. <laughs> Give us um, transparent gateways. Yes. That um, also sounds like a cult. <laughs> <laughs> it really does. Uh, speaking of cults, uh, let's talk about Crossroads by Franzen. We'll end with Matrix, <sighs> if that's okay to you. So both you and I read Crossroads by Jonathan Franzen. And we both have been... Let's say we've been on a sabbatical from caring about Franzen um, for a while. You picked up early uh, vibrations from the bookish universe that maybe not only what, were we ready to re-engage with Franzen on, in this new world, but also this book might be an especially good hook for re-engagement of it. I will say, I, like I just tipped my hand and got into the, I liked it on the whole, and I was mm-hmm. into it for long stretches of it. It's a 560-page book that I read in two days. So there's, you know, the proof is in the reading, as they say, yep. about how much you were into something. But it turns out Jonathan Franzen is still Jonathan Franzen for good and for ill. I think I am ready to slough off any weight I attach to the idea of Jonathan Franzen. Yes. Are, we, are, are you in agreement? What do I mean by that, Rebecca? You know... The last like decade or so of Jonathan Franzen has been a lot of internet discourse with a capital D, um, both discourse that he generated by having opinions about mm-hmm. social media in which he pointedly and proudly does not engage, but has opinions about it nonetheless, which the people of social media at the time did not appreciate. And I was certainly one of those, you know, when you're active on a platform like Twitter and someone who has no experience with it is out there like talking about how it's bad for the world. Yep. It's easy to become defensive about the thing. Over time, I think Jonathan Franzen's opinion about Twitter specifically have been proven to be pretty correct. Right. Um, uh, you know, a bespectacled author's write twice a day. One of those kind of things, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and then just, I think that he also suffered for being a, not suffered, that as we've had a conversation in publishing that's been very necessary and culture in a broader sense about the need for more diverse voices and for better representation of more people and more kinds of experiences. 
Jonathan Franzen was ripe to be yes. cast aside because he was, when this conversation really started picking up, he was a late 50s, early 60s white guy who had won a bunch of big book awards and was very famous and had gotten into a feud with Oprah for declining to come on her show. Mm-hmm. So there's also like, you think you're too good for Oprah. Um, there was a lot of like little bits of baggage that added up to a big bag. And then when we started placing value on other kinds of voices. I think a thing that happens early in conversations like that and early in movements like that is that there's a lack of nuance inside all of the sort of fervent yes. conversation for it. And that's just, I I have come to think this is unavoidable in the beginning of a movement that people are really passionate about doing a new thing, that it felt like we need to place value on all these other voices. They do deserve space. It is very important. So no one who has had space before should continue to take it up. And who has taken up more space than middle-aged white male novelists, right. of which Jonathan Franzen was one of the most visible and one of the most vocal. And he had the belt so he, at the moment when people were like, should yeah, there be a belt and should this person have it? It wasn't right. anything and, about him necessarily it was more of the idea of Jonathan Franzen and, right, Jonathan it, right Franzen exactly himself. it was the like the sort of the like specter of Franzenness right, that right. hung over everything it wasn't even really about his work like the the most recent novel before this one purity which is the one that I haven't read I, haven't read um, I think was sort of a widely not considered to be very great um and the, I think that timing of a not great novel while There was also some shunning uh, in general of white male novelists just also didn't work in his favor. And a thing that I think you've articulated well on previous episodes is that as we have like built a bigger table and there's more room at it for writers of all kinds and all experiences and backgrounds, we can come to some more of the nuance now. It's like we can come back to. There are some white male writers who are doing work that deserves to be published and that deserves to have attention paid to it. And I know that, like, maybe not everybody wants to come to that place. I don't know that the Franzenaissance is reaching, like, the cool kids of hipster publishing culture. Book's not good enough. Um, Yeah. And also I've like I haven't ever pretended to be a cool kid of hipster culture, Mm -hmm. so I don't need to fulfill that. But I think like that's where the the water's warming again for Franzen is there's just more room in there's more air in the room. And the weight of his of the weight of the defining parts of his identity is lightning in the cultural conversation because there is space for other people now. Um, And I'm, I'm glad for that. He's a good writer and I'm glad that I read this book and that there is space to consider it. And let's talk about maybe before we get into the flaws, the thing that Franzen is very good at, and it has to do with his identity. He is very, very good at writing about middle to upper middle class white families systems. Mm-hmm. And yes. you and I grew up in those family systems. We didn't know how close to Franzen's <laughs> own experience ours were, albeit you know, decade a decade or and a half later. But growing up in where a big part of our social circles were around church, but also the youth group, I, the idea of the youth mm-hmm. group um, and what that means, and then also what also having a youth group says about the community you're in and what people go to those things for and what's happening in the houses you're going back to. He was good at in the corrections. He's good at it in freedom. Mm -hmm. He's good at it here. He has the same blindnesses, I think, maybe a little bit. I think the difference now is he knows where his blindnesses are or he knows where he maybe shouldn't tread. I think maybe he's learned that 
the idea of being the great American novelist is not just wrong, but also a burden because you think you know things and have the ability to speak for things that you do not know. No one can speak mm -hmm. for all people. America is too big and diverse to have a singular voice be representative of it. It just so happened that he was the one on the cover of Time when the tide shift and people were being empowered and being listened to and being loud mm -hmm. about this is not every, this is not the only way. This is not worthy of the kinds of praise, critical and fiduciary awards to the to the exclusion of people that are being excluded. He, I don't think he's any better or worse than he was then. I think he's very. This is this could have been. This had the same feeling to me as freedom. It or not freedom. Well, freedom and and the corrections. He's writing kind mm -hmm. of the same story, and I think what the story is is both simple and hard to convey, which is relationships in a family are difficult. And especially with the late 70s into the 80s, benign neglect of your kids. Uh -huh. And that's where he wants to dwell and not knowing how to have productive relationships between parents and kids. Yeah. And then that trickling down into the siblings having strong relationships that are also warped by what those relationships are trying to do. And then where people go to find comfort and support and honesty and transparency and freedom um, and morality and guidance and, and an identity, if it's not really provided for you in any meaningful way. Am I on to the, the gist of it here? What would you add to that um, yeah, consideration? Yeah, I, I think that's right. That, you know, I read a couple interviews with him this morning and he said that the reason that the book is set in the 70s is that that is the he was born in the late 50s or early 60s and the 70s were the first decade that he remembers really clearly he was i think yeah. 11 to 21 in mm -hmm. the 70s um so he remembers it clearly he, he kind of noted charmingly that he could write about it authentically without having to do a lot of research mm -hmm. which he apparently hates and that endeared me to jonathan franzen <laughs> that he doesn't want to like spend a lot of time he doesn't want to do doing the full a bunch of bill, like, he doesn't want to do the full bill bryson short history of everything and read all the right, books ever written which, by about physics by lay people right yeah uh and i think he is very concerned with i mean he called himself in one of the interviews a novelist of psychology he's yeah. interested in how we think about ourselves how we understand the world how that gets tangled up with the, the fact that we have to interact with other people and specifically family relationships you can't get away from those people so you just have all these humans like fumbling around trying to figure themselves out bumping up against other humans in the same house who are trying mm -hmm. to figure themselves out and it's really messy and it was messier i think or messy at least in a different way in the 70s when as you said like the culture was sort of around benign neglect in parenting and like psychotherapy wasn't such a big thing and also as looms large in in this book like Roe versus Wade is just becoming yes. a thing. Sexual liberation is just becoming a thing. And also like Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem are just on the scene. And the women are especially are starting to see their lives and the possibilities for their lives or the things that they have sacrificed without realizing it and the ways that they're trapped in their lives in a new way. It's a really fertile place to explore a family. The thing missing and again, I don't, I can't speak for anyone's family systems. I would say my own family system growing up was complicated. But even amidst that complication, there were moments of fun 
this family has as little fun as any fam. <laughs> there's is there is there any yeah, moment it's... of like even transitory like you know how this is. Even if it's weird, you still have moments of like that was fun. Right. There's really none <laughs> of think... that at all, which is made it stultifying. And I think that's the thing I was. It's complicated. It's even more complicated because there could even be moments of transcendent connection, even amidst the the garbage and the difficulty yeah, of the whole thing. I, I think that some of that is a byproduct of how the book is structured. That mm. it's around a Christmas. It's like two days at Christmas in nineteen seventy one. Right, I and think seventy one. Two days ish at Easter in nineteen seventy four, with a whole lot of background to each person's history, especially the parents. We get to see their childhoods, and I think Franzen is interested in generations of a family yes. and how things replicate themselves and get repeated if they don't get addressed and so like you see some substance abuse stuff that repeats in multiple generations and he's got he's exploring mental illness some and patterns of i think he's concerned with masculinity in a way that's really interesting and is not terribly overt but mm-hmm. russ the father and at least one of the sons spent a lot of interior time concerned with appearing to be strong and with judging what they see as weakness in, in other men um even the men in their own families that it's just oh man i just lost my train of thought oh, there <laughs> no but i mean that it's about it's about a particular moment in time and a lot of it is yeah, still relevant and, a lot of it feels like a oh, period piece too yeah and that there's not much fun yeah i no, think not that, much fun that was something that I was thinking about as well in prep for the show is like, I assume that there were moments of warmth or at least silliness or lightness or something less than this misery. But we see this family in like really their most miserable moments mm-hmm. or what we're given to understand are their most miserable moments. Except when the book picks up, we know that, or when the book opens, we know that it's been three years since Russ's like humiliation. Right. And it takes a couple chapters to find out that the humiliation was that he basically got asked to no longer participate in the church's youth group that he was helping lead because now there's a cool new leader in town um, and all the problems in the family apparently flow from that but we get so much history of these people over the course of the book that you start to understand there were a lot of problems even before you know i think you got into this idea of like generational Effect. Uh, I don't want to use the phrase generation trauma because that's not something I'm comfortable using, but that's the one that drives to mind. Like things happen to people in the past and it comes down and it has effects mm-hmm. and, and, and it can ripple and multiply. Sometimes there's dead ends, but sometimes it has effects on down the road. I think that kind of psychological genealogy is super yeah. fascinating to look mm-hmm. at, right? And even something like our beloved Gilead quadrilogy doesn't really do it doesn't go back it doesn't look to the earlier two generations ago where this one does there's there are hints and more than hints and full stories that says here's how this person ended up this way and if you understand that it doesn't excuse it and doesn't make any better but then that how it affects the next person and that person Mm -hmm. interacts with this other person there's this other history and it's so complicated there's almost a chaos chaos theory of emotional cause and effect that almost makes it seem like the only possible outcome is i don't familial entropy right there's no mm. there's nothing to hang on to here that says well this might be a mess but if you do x if you hug your kids if you go to therapy <laughs> if you play catch right if if you have catch with your dad right mm. unlike field of dreams there is a yeah. moment of restoration now we should also say that this is the opening salvo in what will be a series apparently which is called 
Rebecca, would you like to hit the people what this is apparently going to be called? Oh, gosh, I lost my notes of it with the key to all mythologies. I believe you like DM'd me with the key to all mythologies <laughs> is going to be. And do we know anything else? You did the reading. Is, do we know anything yes, else about okay. the future iterations of this? So this? there are going to be two more books. He's thinking of this one as the first in a trilogy, but he doesn't know or he's saying he doesn't know like really what's going to happen in the next two. And um, a thing that I appreciated about this, like on first blush in the interview that I was reading where he was, they were like, this is the first in a trilogy that you're calling the key to all mythologies. And that's a reference to something in Middlemarch. And I was like, that is the most Franzen of all things I've ever heard. However, one of the interviewers asks him about it and the story behind it that he gives at least, I think is pretty wonderful. His partner, whose name is Kathy. I mean, he's like, this was a joke between Kathy and her ex that whenever they would like bump into someone like on the street who was a, a zealot fr- representing some sort of religion and yeah. they hand you, you know like a laminated pamphlet and you'd be like what is this guy on about one of them would look at the other in that like language that couples have and would say well that guy has the key to all mythologies <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so Franzen is like taught he was saying like that phrase was in his head and that he is sort of poking at his character's search for like spiritual meaning but also like joking about the even possibility that he could have the key to all mythologies and at this point even joking about whether he will finish mm. two more books because he's he was like i'm in my 60s and it takes me 10 years to write a novel so like what oh do I god come on gonna do but there was like some humor and self-effacement that i I really appreciated in these couple interviews and Mm. i'll drop you the links so we can put them in the show notes um it shed interesting light for me on on what he was thinking about with this um i also was really into it for a good chunk and i i was doing the like reading in the mornings with my coffee which i don't always do and carving out some time in the afternoons and um feeling very like well, I mean, we had a conversation of like Jonathan Franzen had to have been in youth group, yes. right? And, like I can confirm now that he was. I also what denomination so my, did he say? Oh no, okay. he didn't. It kind of doesn't matter, if, but yeah, if he did, I missed it. But he he kind of notes that like going to church was a social value for his parents. Yep. They thought it was like an important part of sort of social life, but none of no one was particularly religious mm. in his family, and he is not religious um but that the youth group experiences are like very relevant and relatable to what i experienced in the 90s in in church youth groups and my only unanswerable question then because a lot of characters do drugs in this book and it's described in detail because the 70s was like which drugs has jonathan franzen done and how much money will we have to pay him to talk about i think he's done all the drugs that are listed here (laughs) i would think maybe not peyote too well, well, actually, no peyote, one, no one actually does with peyote, peyote right. yeah, on the page, right? Spoiler alert at the end. They don't actually yeah. do that. Can we do five minutes of youth group stuff that's kind of unrelated? Please, Jeff. This we is both be the had best good experiences youth group, right? <laughs> Mostly. Mostly. Yeah. Okay. Mine was, in hindsight, amazingly, unalloyedly positive. Um, hmm. I grew up, my mom became a pastor, but was a Methodist. My grandfather was a Methodist, worked in a church. My grandmother worked in a Methodist church, Methodist all the way down. And I went to Sunday school from the very beginning age. But youth group begins for most people in these settings. And I don't know what it is anymore. At, you know, kind of the middle school, whatever it's that sixth yeah, or seventh, seventh grade. Yeah, seventh grade-ish. Yeah. And it's this special, it's, you know, even, even the location of these youth groups in the building of the church tells you something <laughs> about them, right? It's like always the basement. Basements, attics. It doesn't, it's non-liturgical. It's informal. It happens at weird times in the week, like Tuesday nights or Sundays at six. Like it's, it orbits the idea of church. Um, we would do like 
songs but not hymns that we'd sing. It would be sort yeah. of about religion, but also more about kind of a more amorphous, like being good, being supported. We each and even even had our individual breakout weekly support groups of a smaller group that you talk. It was I mean, Michelle and I met at church. We mm-hmm. went to youth group together. Um, we still keep in contact with people that we had times. We went to camp. We did the retreats. Like, a lot of it's here. Now, we didn't have the layer, or at least I didn't do the layer that was about drugs and sex that was layered on top of it. Some was because it was the early 90s, which was different than 1971 and what mm-hmm. people did in these spaces. Mine didn't have an undercurrent at all of, like, I don't know, sordidness. It was all very Ken doll and Barbie doll stuff in terms of very safe, very square. I guess square is the right way to put it. Also Ken and very white, I should say at the same time. Um, But it really meant a lot to me at the time. It was a social circle that was outside of school, but also not a cult, not also insular, but supportive. And on the other hand, it was really weird. It's a really weird to look at. Even by junior <laughs> and senior is. years, like, this is weird. It, I yeah, like it, it but is, it is weird. It is. I think you captured it really well. I also grew up, like, Methodist all the way down. Yeah. And then near the end of teenage years had, like, a short-lived experience in evangelical culture, which was on the not positive end of my mm. youth group experiences. But the bulk of it, and what I experienced in the Methodist church was really positive and for the reason that you said and also that Fransom captures so well that it's this social place that's outside of school and that has this leveling effect at least if it's if it's done right if the leaders do it well like you are friends in youth group with people that you aren't friends with like Monday through Friday and that it it doesn't mean you're like cold shouldering them in school Mm -hmm. but you're in different social circles in school and you interact with each other at youth group and you get to see people in a new way and you get to be seen in a different way and sort of talk about like that's that age of life where you start to understand yourself as an existential being I think Mm and um, youth group creates space for probably if you had to go back and listen to the conversations that you had when you were please don't if if if, if there's a hell it's going to be me listening to my 15 year old self talk about life like pondering like please no like, Please, what no. does it mean to be a good person when you're 14? Yeah. Um, but those are important conversations to have and important spaces to have and to be led by adults who share some sort of foundational value, but you're not related to and they're not being paid to be your teachers. Right. Um, I think I think is also really valuable about that. And Friends and Captures, it's super well. And like, I also, you know, have memories like we would, I think we sang like, I have a really clear memory of everybody singing Free Fallen by Tom Petty. It's exactly but like in a the right kind of down, thing. Yeah. <laughs> like a slowed down acoustic thing. There, it feels like it's spiritual adjacent, but nobody's preaching. But also you. you'd sing like El Shaddai or like the current Amy Oh, like you kind of mix that other stuff Amy into. Grant, yeah, yeah, baby, baby action was right. happening. Michael W. Mine was Smith. also like, yeah, if there was sorted stuff happening in my youth group, I did not know no. about it. I don't think there were kids showing up high or like sneaking off to have sex on the youth group couch mm-hmm. when we were you know, having meetings at the church. Um, the leveling effect did. observation, I think, is super astute. And I think the reason it happened is because youth group was uncool. It just was. So if you were there to sort of pose as sort of participating in an economy of coolness was a joke. There was no way to be cool in youth group. And I think that's even captured in this book. Like there's the the, the eldest daughter of the Hillenbrand family, which is the central family here, is the effortlessly popular kind of 
magical girl, right? Who's popular without trying. Mm-hmm. She's nice to everyone without being, I don't, without being sort of like cloying about it. And she decides to go because she wants to go and it levels her and she has other experiences, but you can't, it does take her down kind of a peg outside of the economy of coolness at school because it's fundamentally uncool to go. So that, that place where you're not participating in coolness does have a leveling effect and it lets you be more vulnerable. And even in the way these, the people that tend to be youth group leaders have their own kind of vibe, right? They don't want to, mm-hmm. they want to be in the church, but they want to be pastors. They're a middle, they're in a middle position as well. And it's also very interesting at the same yeah, time. Yeah, I feel like to this day, I can spot a youth pastor from like a hundred yards away. Like there's That's just a, a really vibe. interesting point. <laughs> Like if I'm back in the days before COVID when I would be like sitting in a coffee shop, I've had a couple occasions where I'd be like sitting in a coffee shop with friends and I could see two men like sitting in armchairs very earnestly talking with each other. And it would be like, I bet you 10 bucks that one of those guys is a youth minister. And then five minutes later, the youth Bible gets pulled out of his bag and it was like, bingo. Like it is, it's such a specific vibe and Franzen captures that so well in the character of Rick Ambrose here yeah. too, who's like, he is relatable to the kids. They think he's cool. They look up to them. He's challenging them to like talk about things in a different way. And I don't know that it erases the idea of cool so much as the, it redefines what's cool. To be cool in youth group is to not care about being yeah, cool, but right. to be earnest and invested and in the particular group of crossroads to be like willing to tell the truth to someone and ask hard questions and own up to your own stuff. Right. Um, there's some like, there's a real 70s like consciousness raising flavor mm. to some of those conversations as well. Like we didn't do those that level of activity in my group, youth group in the 90s. No one was like, pair up with a random person no, and tell them what we, one of we their defanged that. Is. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. right. Yeah, that was tough stuff to read. Tell me about a barrier and tell me about the thing you do well and they have to look each other in the eyes. Like, good Lord. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's a fact. I've never seen it. I've never seen it written about. Have you? Do you ever remember anyone having youth oh. group as a topic in any book like this? No. I mean, I think it's come up in memoirs that I've yeah. read, but I've never seen someone fictionalize it and definitely not so thoroughly and with such detail. Yeah. I could talk to Jonathan Franzen about youth group for about a thousand years. I feel like if I got oh, yes. on the horn, I would like to, I, I would just like to talk to him about the particular yeah, I feel like- of it as well. If I ever have the opportunity to like be at a dinner or like mm. a BEA party or something where he is, I'm just a hundred percent going to be like, you don't, we don't have to do book publicity. Just can we talk about yeah. youth group for can 10 minutes? Can we talk about please? the shag or five hours and the bad punch? <laughs> Let's do one more sponsor. Oh, good. So good. Go ahead. Do you have anything else there? No, I'm just, you know, it was great. Yeah. Uh, let's do one more sponsor. We'll talk about a matrix by Lauren Groff. I read this first. You read it second. I think I tipped my hand before you started reading that I was I was taken with Matrix by mm-hmm. Lauren Groff. Rebecca, tell me why I'm right. Oh, well, yeah, you tipping your hand that you were taken by it is what pushed me to like bump it up my radar mm. a little bit because I felt like I knew what Lauren Groff was about. And I like what Lauren Groff I did too. is about. Um, and then I was... I was on a layover on a trip and I was like, what am I going to read? I'm in between things. And it just, I remembered you saying that it was good and I wanted to sink into something. Boy, Mm. I think she leveled up and went, I felt like this was a leveling up and a revelation of like a whole new, I don't know, wing of the Lauren Groff building. Yeah, that's right. I agree with you. It's a different kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Like she, so the, the unifying things about Lauren Groff, as I understood her going in, like she's really concerned with women's experiences and lives. There's this undercurrent 
of like heat and rage in a lot of her work. And she's concerned with relationships and the dynamics in the world between men and women. And mm-hmm. you get that in a, in a really big way in Fates and Furies. And you get it in a whole bunch of like quiet cutting ways in Florida. Um, it shows up in different ways in some of her previous novels. But I think as she's developed, this was my understanding of like a Lauren Groff book is fiction through a decidedly feminist lens that has this like undercurrent of hot anger to it. And that's true of Matrix, but in like a bigger, deeper, more creative way mm-hmm. because it's a set it's a it's about 12th century nuns which by the way that blurb that people have like boiled this book down to being about 12th century nuns does it such a disservice yeah it's wrong but it's not accurate (laughs) it's right but it's not accurate (laughs) yeah that are the the woman who sort of becomes the i've lost the term the head nun yes um has this real vision for what the place this place of women can be um when it's set apart you know there are notably no men in a convent for lots of reasons and what the relationships between those women can be like but also what it is to have this the space that protects women from the world and why do women need to be protected from the world i was talking to amanda about it because after i read it i was like i need you to read the new lauren Groff (laughs) because i need to talk about it with you and she said something about uh like the idea of separateness as resistance Mm. um which i think is interesting too but this this book felt really ambitious um, that Groff just inhabits a space that must have taken a lot of research to understand. Did you read the acknowledgments? She clearly I did. I did. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then I did a lot of Googling about Marie de France. I did, too. <laughs> Who has no relation. I mean, it's kind of vaguely inspired by the main character, but yeah. a, a completely different person at the same time. Yeah. just it's It just feels like a. it's bigger in scope um, mm-hmm. than her other books and her other books were plenty big in in scope but this just grabbed me all the way i thought i think the world of this book is so fully realized like that you can feel how you like how cold it would be in the unheated mm-hmm. like room where they're praying on the stone floors and that like what it's like in the room where all the nuns sleep together at night and sort of like the steam of their breath rising and the different sounds and she just brings it all together there's like kind of a mythological quality to the whole thing yeah um, i think that's well said and just really captured me yeah it's interesting I, to think that's... about groff in relation to franzen because there's a world mm-hmm. in which you can look at groff's body of work to this point as not being like franzen's but consi- like in the same ballpark like they 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 are concerned yeah. with similar things in different ways but they're not a difference of de- of of kind away from each other i wouldn't say um, in a lot of ways, Arcadia is a lot like Crossroads, weirdly, in a lot of ways. <laughs> That's true. And like um, Fates and Furies is not dissimilar in some important ways from some of the stuff that he's doing in like in Freedom in and Freedom. Corrections. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But this is a this is a a sally of imagination into territory we weren't mm-hmm. it would be like if Franzen's next book was like a science fiction book or something like like literally it's that different in a lot of ways it is almost more speculative fiction than historical fiction because so little is known about these people yeah. you're not reconstructing based on a whole bunch of like archival Ken Burns like footage and diaries or from Samuel Pepys or 
um, William Templeton Strong. Boy, I really pulled those names out. Good job, me. Yeah, you um, really did. Um, and it's much more like taking scraps, taking remnants, taking what you know about the world, and then almost rebuilding a psychological, sexual, gendered history of what it must have been like. Because there's, I think there's three levels this really worked on me. The first is, what was it really like to be a nun in the 12th century? Now, many yeah. people might not care about that, but as a more, I'm interested in most things other people aren't. But yes. it's, you know, nuns do a lot of praying, but you don't know how much praying nuns do. <laughs> you get up in like the middle of the night multiple times to go pray. Mm-hmm. It's wild. And then what it means to actually be a substance farmer, which essentially these these convents were. They were not just um, growing and eating and making everything themselves, but also they had to pay taxes to the crown. They had to ship some off to Eleanor of Aquitaine, right? They exact some so they could go fight wars or do other things. Then they had to figure out the relationship to the community in which they're in because part of it is, is – religious, but part of it is like social work, right? What do you do with mm-hmm. these cast off women? What do you do with the poor? What do you do with the rich who get angry? What do you do with the um, the farmers who are basically renting the land from you that you then tax based on, and how do you manage all of that? So that slice of life stuff is fascinating. Mm-hmm. There is then the 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 social world of the, at the abbey, Right, how the nuns relate to each other, what the power structures like, what are all these individual women's stories? How do they relate? How do they come and go? What happens to them? And then there's the the central character is the character study of her, who is tall, gawky, sort of nobility, but also not for reasons that we don't need to get into here. Has a relationship with Eleanor of Aquitaine, is in love with her, um, is gay and a lesbian before those terms were even things people talked about, how sexuality is presented how sexuality grows out of proximity and relationship Mm -hmm. as much as about um, sex or gender uh, or nature or nurture or anything else uh, about that. And all three of those, all all three of those vectors I found super fascinating. And then, then um, structure, uh, I guess, stylistically a very unusual reading experience as well. It happens over multiple decades. It's not very long. The point of view is omniscient third person, but also elliptical and elusive and transitory over space and time, trying to middle between this person who may or may not have authentic religious experiences, but also also knows how to play the politics of the church and how there's friction between, is there really a spiritual piece of this, but also I'm trying to get enough food to feed everyone and to build this labyrinth to keep all these um rapists, frankly, out of town. Um, And so all that thing, just a massively fascinating, intricate, uh, sustaining, and special. It's special. I haven't read anything like it. I can't imagine reading anything like it again. Yeah, it's very special. And I think she, just to build on a little bit of that, does such an interesting and a nice job of looking at from all angles the like function of control that these convents played um both for the communities that this was a place to send your cast off women um, but then also the control that exists within them like one of the reasons besides piety that the day is so programmed with prayer and chores and work is that you're too busy then to have independent thought mm-hmm. and to question things or to cause trouble. And we get to be in the head of this woman who reaches a place of enough power and she has control in the space that she can step 
away from the structure enough to question it and to like to cook up her own schemes about how this is going to go and how she's going to position herself and the convent these women in their communities and how she's going to sort of try to navigate all the complexities of the relationships that exist inside them as well and sort of like the different players on the scene you know you get like the old the nuns who have been there for a million years and are just cranky about things like all these different personalities that come out that politics is the right word for it that she's that she has to navigate it's uh, and those pieces are so you know just universally human and relatable but this setting was nothing i'd ever read before the way that she that she tells this story it was really truly singular and i'm i was really glad that you said the thing that you did at the moment that you said it about like man the new lauren graf has got me Mm. um because i think i might have waited for the hype to die down a little bit otherwise and i'm so glad i got i don't even remember because i was kind of in the same boat like no one tipped me off but i was like there's something I was like, what is Groff doing? And I think even talking about mm. the best books, we're like, what is this? This is not the blurb I was <laughs> expecting, which got interesting to me. Like, I'd be more interested in Jonathan Franzen's next book if it was about a 12th century nun. Well, not now, but, you know, whatever sure. the equivalent of that would have been. is like, <laughs> now I think the, like you say, the horizon for Groff is much different. You literally have no mm-hmm. idea what she might do next. I think it reminded me, my closest memory reading experience in terms of vibe is The Stone Diaries by Carol Shields, which is a lifetime mm-hmm. of a woman's life. And also, I think it's set in Canada in the 70s, but you're following... There's not a plot, really. It's like, how does she start? Where does she start? And then when does she die? And how does the life go? Because what's the plot of this exactly, Rebecca? Like, there is right. no... I mean, things. I mean, she's just trying to get through it. She's trying to live yeah. and acquire, but there is no climax. There is no denouement. There is no... The inciting incident, I guess, is that she's she's basically assigned to this convent, but it doesn't follow. It's more episodic. I guess it's more like a Romana Clef, where she has to deal with this particular problem or this person comes on. It reminds me, of, to some degree, reminds me of like Shawshank Redemption, where you have this like hmm. cloistered community and they have relationships within them and they're just trying to get through it. And But someone new comes into town and they throw out the vibe and there's this word and they have to deal yeah. with. And like, it reminds me of that. It kind of reminds me of like the Godfather too, because it's about how you move pieces and she's trying to navigate power and she's inside the law, but also outside the law. So I, if you like those sort of power dynamic systems that are mm-hmm. insular, you're going to really enjoy the book too. I, I think <laughs> it, a warning is too strong, but be aware that the writing style is not simple. Um, right. The writing style is challenging. Challenging is also too strong. But you, tell me... Do that better for it's me. Not, How would you describe this style? She's subtle. It's not overt. Subtle, right. And I think that Franzen does some of that. Like the Franzen writing style is more accessible than yes. Matrix is. And Matrix is not inaccessible, but you, you're, you're like, it got to work for it a little bit mm-hmm. more. Um, the, the way that since we're talking about them together, I think the way that Franzen is subtle is that you get things like... You see the father thinking about a woman he's attracted to. And 100 pages later, you see a son thinking about the woman he's attracted to. And those are very similar types of women. But nothing ever drops onto the page that's like, hello, and have you noticed that these men have this? You know, like, it's just there. It's just there for you to pick up. Um, And Groff is subtle in, like, it's one of those pieces of art that feels almost effortless and so it must have been a lot of work it must have been excruciating (laughs) yes to get there yeah (laughs) it must have just been really really hard but it's it is the writing is a little different and it is very subtle 
And there are little things that, like if you don't, I think it requires close attention mm-hmm. that if you miss two sentences in the wrong spot, you are going to be super confused right. for like the next 20 Wait, someone's dead? <laughs> wait, wait, happened. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. The, yeah. Really cool. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I was super glad. And it's, it's hard to compare special books. Um, I still think the only way I can do this is to go back and say, pretend you hadn't read all of these, but somehow knew what the reading experience was like. <laughs> which one do you pick? To make sure you, mm. th- which is one do you save? I'm not so sure I don't pick Matrix over Claire in the Sun. I'm not so sure I do, oh. but I'm not so sure I don't. So that's yeah, kind of where I am as well. Yeah, I don't want to have to choose between those two. You don't have to. This is all a construct <laughs> for conversation's Great. sake. I refuse to make that choice. But I will make you do but it later. For I would kick Jonathan Franzen out of that. I would. Oh, I, I don't think to... it's close. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't think it's close. So there you go, Matrix. Um, which I kind of wish was called the Abbess. I think it would be more palatable to pick up because, like, what is this? It, it, even it took me yeah, till the end to the, get what it is. The title doesn't do it any favors, no. and maybe we don't care. I mean, honestly, yeah. I mean, it does. It's not going to matter in the long run. But the Abbess, I think, is a little clearer. Um, but it also mm-hmm. maybe clarity is not the point, and that's fine too. You go, Lauren Groff, if you fought back to have the obscurest <laughs> title that was off-putting, even though it's probably more accurate. That's up to you. But you wrote a great book, and I'm glad it was there. Yeah. All right. So our next is The Sentence, Eredric, which comes out mm-hmm. November 9th. So we're not probably going to talk yeah. about that till the 16th or maybe maybe later. I think know. we're talking about that actually in early December sometime because we've ah. got to do the two uh, – oh, we have to do the two um, holiday gift recommendation oh. episodes around Thanksgiving. So that's a nice note to end on. Yeah. Send us your questions. Please do. We've got a couple so far. I actually need to open the document, Rebecca, as you can see. You've got a couple so far, but still plenty of – of uh, Blue Sky for, for you to get your recommendation requests in for you. Show notes, as always, at bookriot.com slash listen. Choose an email podcast at bookriot.com. Go subscribe to Adaptation Nation. It's wherever you get your podcast. You can go search for it in Overcast, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. It's all there. Also will be a link in the show notes. Um, and you'll hear, I guess, by the next time we record, that'll be out. So I'm excited. To, I'm excited mm-hmm. for that. Um, you can tell I haven't said anything about Dune, whether I liked it, didn't like it. I know. That's what you call keeping it for the, keeping it keeping it fresh. Uh, thank you all for listening so much, and we'll talk to you later, Rebecca. Have a good one. Bye.